begin this morning, uh, I want to start with just a little story. And it's kind of an imaginary story, kind of a, a rough sketch of what God's people are supposed to be like. But maybe it will help um, get this point across as we begin. So imagine that you haven't eaten in days and that you're really hungry, you're famished, and you get invited to a great banquet, and you're brought to this table, and you see all these other guests there that look very much like you do. You can tell through conversation that everybody's hungry. And they bring just plate after plate, and then tray after tray, and they set it across the table. And there is a banquet, a feast that's prepared before you. It is delicious to smell. Your eyes see it. Your stomach is grumbling. You're, you're, you're ready to eat And then at the same time, as everybody begins to eat, they realize they reach towards their fork and they can't bend their elbows. Think about that for a second. Have you ever thought about if you can't bend your elbow, you're not going to eat very good, Brother Ben. That's a good diet strategy. They can't bend their elbows. And so everybody is thinking about what they're going to do next. Nobody wants to be the first one to act like a dog and go face first diving in. You would. Everybody except our youth. (laughs) So what do you do? One guy thinks, and he picks up his fork, and he reaches his stiff arm across and puts it up to his neighbor's mouth. And then everybody in likewise turns. And you can't feed yourself, but you can pick something up off that plate and feed your neighbor. And if everybody does that, everybody eats, despite our limitations. And very, very much so, God has designed us to be independent individuals. We each have our own part to play, our own role, our own problems, our own burdens, everything that we have to own, everything that we have to do. But in the same way, God created Christianity as a community so that there's an interdependence between us. And sometimes, just like Ms. Karen and the praise band and the choir stood up here, guys, you may not have been able to reach the food, but somebody was feeding you. And we ate this morning of the praise of God as we were singing glory to him. Maybe that's what I get to do is I get to be one who scoops up a bit of food and puts it over to your mouth so that you can chew it up and swallow it and get the energy and strength that you need so that there's vitality in our lives. But guys, that's such a picture of what God is. God is the Trinity, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've all heard that before. It's three persons, but one God with different roles that are being played. And in their perfection in heaven, there is this great work of unity that is hopefully being passed down amongst the church. Now, we don't see it a lot in the church. In fact, we don't see it near as much as we should. But the church is to be a group of brothers and sisters in Jesus who are not only feeding ourselves, but guys, we're going outside these walls and feeding others, loving others, reaching out, stooping down, helping, giving, sharing, fulfilling the Great Commission. That's our job as people of God. And we get to Nehemiah 3, and you may think, well, how in the world is this going to relate? And it relates well. We're not going to read much of Nehemiah 3, primarily because it's a chapter full of names and places. But I do want to start. And so if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah 3, um, I would never ask somebody to read out loud this book because the names are uh, pretty ludicrous, okay? But it says in verse 1, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. That's going to be important to show because it's showing that the people who are supposed to be spiritually in charge, they're the ones who have been given the reins of leadership, that it's not beneath them to get down and to do manual labor with everyone else. It says that they consecrated it and set its doors. 
They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassanai built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its floors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshesh, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. Have you ever heard of the Tekoites before? They repaired, but their nobles would not listen. The people of Tekoa repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord in such a way as this manual labor. Joada, the son of Pesiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besoadai, and so on and so forth. All throughout this book, you will read about the people who are repairing the wall. If you jump to verse 28, above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Imer, repaired opposite his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. And so on and so forth to the very end. What you read about are goldsmiths, merchants, homemakers, priests. You read about dedicated craftsmen. You read about men and women in this chapter. You read about all sorts of people doing all sorts of work. And you know why? Because every one of us is gifted in a different way to do something. And God asks us, what will you do for me? How will you serve me? I cannot sing very well. I don't sing very often. And when I do sing, I sing in the shower, in the car, or right there where nobody can hear me. Other people are blessed with the ability to play instruments and to sing. If God's given you that ability, it would be shameful not to use it. Some are teachers. Some are good with money. Some God has blessed with the ability to watch after kids. All sorts of gifts all over the place. And when God's people use them all together, the walls get rebuilt. The beautiful thing about this, especially as you read in verse 28, is it said that these people built across or opposite where their home was. We alluded to this, I think, in the first week that we were talking about Nehemiah. But if my home's here... Okay, and I've got this little area that belongs to me. It's where my family is protected. And your home's next door, and the next neighbor's home is next door, and so forth and so on. If I build right here, if I build my portion, which I'm going to be very invested in because I want my home to be safe, and you build yours, and these walls connect, we've got a portion that is guarding our homes, and you want it to be safe. You're going to build it with the greatest of care because you don't want anybody getting past the wall into your home. You don't want to be the weak link in the chain so that some marauder or some person that's coming in could get through or over the gate where you are. So you're going to do your best work. And God kind of gives us that. He says, build up your own home first. You know, when we go on an airplane, they always say, and, and it took new meaning to me this last time we flew in the airplane we had Sperry and Declan with us and you know I've always heard the flight attendants say uh, in case of an emergency an oxygen mask will come down make sure that you place your own oxygen mask on first before helping someone else and there's reason to that if you can't breathe you can't help somebody else and guys if you don't take care of yourself in a spiritual way you're not going to be able to help somebody else spiritually we have to take care of this, this temple. We have to take care of this church that God has blessed us with and given to us. And then we can help other people alongside. And so this is the message and the idea of people and how God rebuilds with people. And so a few lessons here. There's three points to this message this morning. 
And we'll just follow along here. I don't really have the ability to go verse by verse this morning, but I can pull and hopefully glean some insight and wisdom that you can maybe take and make application to in your life. Uh, When we are faced with great challenges, as Nehemiah absolutely was, we must have faith, great faith, I would say, in a great God. But Nehemiah would never have accomplished the work that he did were it not apart from the great dedication of people. People cared. For hundreds of years, for at least a hundred years, the walls of Jerusalem had laid in ruins. And people had really gotten used to seeing their city just in a mess. I mean, it was gross to look at. It was nothing of its former glory. There was rubble and trash. I mean, people had just become so accustomed to it that they no longer even noticed it anymore. We get blind to things spiritually sometimes in our lives. We let a little sin go unchecked and unnoticed. We allow some some trash, something to build up in our lives, or we try to sweep it under the rug so that nobody else will see. But eventually, that stuff will catch up to us. It causes damage. It causes pain. It causes enemies to be able to come in whenever they want to. It's dangerous for us to allow sin to go unconfessed and unrepented of. Just like it was dangerous for the people of Israel to leave those walls, those huge stones and bricks that were just laying one on top of another, just spread out. And so something had to be done. The people were dedicated to the task. Nehemiah was a godly leader. And so while the work was being done, he thanked God and he thanked the people too. You know, it takes humility to thank someone genuinely. Somebody that's done something. Maybe it's for you, maybe for your family, maybe you just see them doing a good deed. A lot of people do not say thank you. A lot of people do not express gratitude to anybody for anything that they do. We just let it go unsaid. We may acknowledge it mentally, but oftentimes we don't say thank you. Simple little words of gratitude. And so Nehemiah not only thanked God, he thanked the people. In Nehemiah 4, which I know we're not there yet, but 4 verse 6, he said, So we built the wall, for the people had a mind to work. Nothing gets built unless we put our hands to the work. Uh, There's this old British quip that says, work, oh yes. I love work. I can sit and stare at it all day. And we're all like that. It's easy, especially when I know we've had church work days and I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody because I do it too. We have a church work day and there will be 20 people out there. And eventually somebody will say, what are you doing? I'm supervising. And you're not doing anything. You're just talking. We all do that, right? And we love to talk about the work. But sometimes we don't really want to work. But when it comes to the work of the Lord, there is no place for spectators. There's also no place for critics. And there's no place for self-appointed advisors. But there is always room for humble servants and workers. Nehemiah 3 applies to all human labor, but especially the work of building the church. And so with that, there are three points this morning. The first point is the purpose of the work. The second point is the pattern of the work. And the third point is the people of the work. If you will remember, and I know we had a break last week because we had uh, Brother Brian here and we voted on him. And uh, we go back just a couple of weeks, and I know our brains may not remember this, but the first week that we were in Nehemiah, we talked about rebuilding with prayer. The the next week, we talked about rebuilding with a plan. And this week, we're talking about rebuilding with people. It takes people to do the work of God here on earth. Now, here's the the thing I I remind myself all the time. 
It is such a privilege for me and for you that God would choose to use us in his work of redemption in the world. But it is also a humbling reminder that God does not need me or you to do his work of redemption in the world. And so before your britches get too big for you, you've got to remember God doesn't need you, but he wants you and he chooses you and he uses you. And so that is a great privilege and a blessing in itself. Number one, the purpose of the work. Above all things, Nehemiah was concerned about the glory of God. In chapter 2, verse 17, he said, Let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. A reproach to whom? A reproach to God. Let us not embarrass God anymore. Can you imagine, guys, if we all had decent vehicles, we all ate well, we all wore nice clothes, our homes were kept nicely, and we came into a church that was threadbare in the carpet, the pews were mismatched, stuff was hanging from the ceiling, 13 of the 40 light bulbs were burnt out, and it was just nasty to come into. Well, in very much the same way, and we don't do that, we hold the sanctuary of God in high regard. It's constantly tended to and cared for. Every month we pay a, a big bill to the bank to help pay off the debt that we have incurred by making God's dwelling place, which it isn't a building, but making this place so nice to come into and look at. But Jerusalem had really forgotten about God because they thought he had forgotten about them. And so they didn't look to God. They weren't looking to glorify God by protecting themselves or by making the city the holy city of God, the city of Jerusalem, this bread of life that God has dwelled in and, and, and all these things. They didn't want to make it nice anymore. And so they'd stopped caring. There was no purpose before to their work. But Nehemiah comes in and he reminds the people of the purpose of God and that instills some kind of a charge in them. It gives them uh, an energy, an ember to light the fire with. The enemies of God delighted in mocking the Israelites, just like people today delight in mocking Christianity. People say, well, if God loved Jerusalem so much, why are the walls in ruin? In ruin? Why are the gates burned? Why was the holy city a reproach? Why didn't the Jews do anything about it if their God meant that much to them? People today say, well, if God is so good, why does he allow this? Or if God means that much to him or her, why do they act like that? Why do they treat people that way? If God means that much to me, why don't I do something to serve him? And people ask those questions about us. We know that by and large, the world ignores the church today. If the church is mentioned, it's usually in derision or mocked. But the purpose of all ministry for us, we shouldn't care as much about what the world thinks of us as what they think about our God. The purpose of all ministry is the glory of God. Any work that you do, whether it's to volunteer in the youth ministry, serve as a Sunday school teacher, work on a committee, it's not about you. It is about God's glory. The problem is, is that I get my feelings hurt and you get your feelings hurt over stuff. And we forget, man, it's not about me. I'm a, I'm a peg in the system. I'm a, a person that God is using. It's so much bigger than me. It's about God's kingdom being advanced. It's about Jesus being known. It's about God being glorified. And so the purpose of all ministry is that God would receive glory. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus prayed this high priestly prayer. He said, I have glorified you, God, 
on earth by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. Where'd the glory come from? The accomplishment of the God-given work. Jesus acknowledged that. Do we do the work God has called us to do? In so doing, we bring glory to God. God has a special task for each one of his children, and through humility and faithfulness, we will bring glory to his name. As we glorify God, we're blessed. Rebuilding the walls was not only bringing this glory to God, you know what else it was doing? It was bringing safety and protection to the people. So every time we're out serving God and giving and loving and being the hands and feet of Jesus, what's happening is in return, we're being blessed and blessed and blessed. We give, we're blessed to be a blessing. We give and we get. We give and we get. We don't give to get. We give because it's out of the abundant nature of Jesus and the spirit that lives within us. But out of that blessing, we're blessed. And so the opposite is true as well. By remaining complacent, by settling for the status quo, by simply sitting still, we can't bring honor to God. If we don't bring honor to God, we won't receive honor. You know, my life verse is 1 Samuel 2.30. And the shortened version of it says that those who honor God, God will honor. Honor is reciprocated, but it must first start with us honoring him. He's honored us in so many ways already, we could never repay the fact, and we're not doing it out of that. We're doing it out of love because we love him so much. The second point is the pattern of the work. Now listen to this. Nehemiah planned his work and worked his plan. Now in chapter 3, you go through and you count them. Don't do it right now. There are 38 individual workers named. There are 42 different groups identified, but most of the workers are not named or mentioned. Their work was equally important, but they weren't given this prestige of having their name mentioned. But God knows their names. What have you done? You don't have to be at this building or on this campus. What have you done this last week? We don't sound a trumpet everywhere we go when we do something for God. We don't have to post everything we do on Facebook. All the good stuff that we do, we don't have to let the world know. Sometimes it's enough just to say, I know what I did, and they know what I did, and God knows what I did. But we should be doing something. God recognizes that, guys, and God rewards us for all we do. D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, once said, A great many people have got a false idea about the church. They've got an idea that the church is a place to rest in, to get into a nicely cushioned pew and contribute to the charities, listen to the minister, and do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy. That's all they want. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church, never enters their minds. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul compared individual Christians to members of the human body. And each member is important. Each has a special function to perform. When we realize God never intended for one person to do it all. Man, that's not, I'm going to tell you what ministers struggle with. Not just me, but ministers, lead pastors, associate pastors, youth pastors, children's pastors, worship pastors, whomever they are. There's this struggle that thinks, I have to do everything. I know it sounds very, very arrogant, but inside there's this frantic, you're, you're the duck above water and it looks so placid on top. Underneath the legs are kicking nine into nothing and you think, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. And it is rewarding and refreshing to know 
for any of us, no matter what part of life we are, not just in ministry, but that we were never called upon by God to do everything. Never. When we're weak, he makes us strong. Brothers and sisters in Jesus have one another. That's the beauty of the church and the Christian community and family. The pattern of work was never designed for just me or just you, but together we can accomplish much in the Lord. The Jews finished this difficult task because they obeyed the same leader. They weren't scattered in faction. There weren't cliques all throughout the group. Everybody was listening to one person, and this group was listening to another. No, there was one. They kept their eyes on the same goal, and they worked together for the glory of God. Neither the enemies outside the city nor the difficulties inside the city distracted them from their God-given task. Like Paul said, they said, this one thing I can do. Philippians 3.13, you can go read that. But here's the deal. What's the one thing you can do? Nobody has an excuse, I promise you, that we can't do something. An important point to remember in rebuilding this city and rebuilding the walls here was that there was enough material amongst the debris. And I hadn't really thought about this before. The city walls were knocked down. Now, the gates were burned. They were in disrepair. But the city walls were knocked down. Most of the huge stone, most of the slabs, most of the rock, most of the brick, it was all there so that they could rebuild with it. They weren't having to go off to a far quarry, chisel out the rock, bring it by horse and cart or however they brought it, and rebuild. They weren't having to remake everything. The material was already provided for them. They just had to clean it up and get it put back in place. I love this thought, guys. There was no new material needed for the city walls. And today, it's not by inventing new strategies and coming up with new things that we rebuild our church. We rebuild by going back to the old truths from ages past, the truth of God's word. It's already there. Now, it may have been pushed over in our lives. It may have been discarded. It may have been thrown away as junk. But man, it's there. And when we pick it back up, we don't have to make something new. You rebuild with that. You rebuild with the word of God. You rebuild with the spirit of God. You work through the son of God. You have the same great commission as those in the Bible did. We have the same promises, the same truth. We don't have to have new strategies for all these things. We don't have to have new programs. We don't have to, you know, dress just like and talk just like and look just like the rest of the world. Man, we have truth to live on. And so it allows us and frees us to be unique individuals, but to use the foundation of the truth to rebuild with. The last thing this morning is the people and the work. I believe Nehemiah 3 is talking, I believe the book of Nehemiah is talking about our church even though it was written so long ago. I believe if we read this and think about it, it applies to our lives in such an incredible way. There were all sorts of people mentioned, and I won't go through all of those. I know there's a slide up there, and you can throw that up there. But there were rulers and priests, men and women, skilled craftsmen, people from outside the city. There was a job for every single person. Now, here's the deal. I believe that every person that sits in here is a leader. And Brother Laban Needham a few weeks ago asked me, hey, do you know what the word preacher means? And I was like, it means proclaimer. Every one of us is a proclaimer, and therefore we're all preachers. We preach by the way we live our lives, by the way we give of our time, talent, and treasure. We preach the word by how we talk to people, how we treat people, what we think about people. We preach the word to others all the time, and we often have to preach the word to ourselves. 
If you're a leader, you must be setting the example of how to work. Leaders and managers are much different. Now, I want to share this with you. This is Forbes magazine, all right? So it's not biblical. It's not. It's very secular. But there are nine differences between being a leader and a manager. Kind of which one do you fall into? Leaders create a vision. Managers create a goal. And there's a difference in that. A goal is a short-term thing. Sometimes we definitely need goals, but a vision is much longer-lasting. Leaders are change agents. They're producing change. They're encouraging people to change, not to remain stagnant. But managers oftentimes maintain the status quo. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Let's not do anything big. Let's not rattle the cage. Let's not shake the waters. Leaders are unique. I mean, they're, they're creative in their process. And managers copy oftentimes. Not, I'm not de- downgrading you this morning if you're a manager of a place because people would consider me a manager as well. Uh, if you're the assistant manager of some place. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about your character makeup in your mind. Are you leadership material or are you management material in this aspect? Leaders take risks. You can be a manager and also a leader. Managers often just control risk. Leaders are in it for the long haul, meaning they're fully invested. Managers a lot of times think short term, meaning if this company doesn't take care of me, I'm out of here. Leaders grow personally. Managers rely on existing proven skills. So leaders build relationships. Managers build systems. Leaders coach. Managers direct. Leaders create fans. I don't like that word, but leaders create fans. Managers have employees. I do see the difference in the value in number nine. It's so important when we think about how we are leading, how we're leading our children and our grandchildren and people at work and people in church and all around us, that we love people. Nehemiah was a leader. He didn't just have people work for him. He produced followers by working amongst the people himself. The other word for this is called discipleship. The priests and scribes did likewise. They tucked in their robes. They used their consecrated hands to do manual labor. No work is beneath you. You know, I saw this funny cartoon the other day, and it was a toothbrush and a roll of toilet paper. And the toothbrush said, I have the worst job in the world. And the toilet paper said, yeah, right. Don't think on that one too hard. But you you get it. We all think that we do the most, that our work is more difficult than anybody else's, that our work is more important than anyone else's. A lot of times we get tunnel vision on that fact, and we lose value for the people around us that are working so hard. Part of Christianity and what the cross did was it humbled us all to level ground to remind us that we're all equal, we're all worthwhile, we're all in need of grace. We are all sinners saved by that same grace, and it is the cross of Jesus and Jesus himself that should be our focus. And when we think about this, we're running the race together, and it's a beautiful thought. It, It takes a lot off of our shoulders. Until we consider people around us and the sacrifices made, a lot of times we won't appreciate people. Guys, a lot of times people that you don't care for, you're not praying for anyway. The problem is with us as believers, sometimes we'll pray for ourselves, we'll pray for our families, we'll pray for prosperity and blessing, we'll pray for treasure, we'll pray for all those things, but we stop, and only when somebody's sick and in dire need do we think to pray for them. That's where a lot of us live. But part of intercession, and that's what intercessory prayer is about, it's for someone else. We need to be praying for others, praying for their needs, praying for their weaknesses, praying for the people that have left, praying for the people that have stopped working, praying for others altogether, because there's so much at stake. 
As much as we strive to give our best and work hard, we have to remember that some people will not work. Listen, guys. Verses 5 and 27, I mentioned this little town of Tekoa. This is kind of the last point that I really want to drive home this morning. There are other people that you're going to work harder than. When we're putting our hands to building a wall, man, you're going to outwork some people. You're going to outpace them. There's going to be some people over there, and you've been working for hours, and they've been sitting over in the shade drinking water for hours. And it's real easy to get mad at those people, to lose respect for those people, to not associate with those people, to see ourselves as better than or greater than them. Those people exist in the church. There are people that think that it's somebody else's responsibility to teach kids or to drive vans or to pick up trash or to greet people or to teach or to whatever it is and you name it. There's always somebody that's going to say, not my place. And it may be out of a lack of self-confidence saying that I can't do that or it may be out of arrogance saying that's beneath me. But there's always going to be people that don't do what we think they should. And in verse 5 and verse 27, there's this little town of Tekoa that's mentioned. The Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Verse 27, it says, um, and, um, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite, the water gate on the east and the protecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. <clears throat> Here's the point. Tekoa, you wouldn't know this, but it's a little bitty town about 11 miles outside of Jerusalem. The people of Tekoa did not live in the city, but they were Jews. They said, our brothers are in trouble. Our brothers need help. Who cares if it's not our city? Who cares if it's not our church? The kingdom is of greater importance. God's glory is at stake. And we've got to step outside of, this is my church. Everybody else is an imposter, an imposer, or or maybe some enemy. The Tekoites came to Jerusalem and they worked and they worked and they worked. Their leaders, however, saw the work beneath them and they did not stoop to serve the Lord. That's what the Bible says. If you're a high-minded person, um, we have to be careful because sometimes we think that some tasks are beneath us working in the nursery, working with children, picking up kids on the van, working in the kitchen. I could name a hundred of them probably, and you could too. But before we think we shouldn't be doing some kind of menial labor, I want you to remember that Paul was a tent maker and Jesus was a carpenter. They worked with their hands, and yet they were, Jesus was God. Paul was probably the greatest servant of God. It's been said, and I don't know what kind of statistic this is, but I've heard it all my life that in the church, that there are 20% of the people who do 80% of the work. This isn't meant to degrade anybody, but it's usually true in church life. And those 20% are tired. And if you think today, and I'm not calling you this, but if you feel conviction and you think, well, I'm in the 80% and I'm not really doing a lot. And maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're the 20% and you're the one who says, I've been serving and working. Why can't somebody else do it? Why can't they step up? And you think in your mind of people that you start putting faces with names and you think, why, why won't they serve? Why won't they help? And you begin to resent people and it breaks unity and it breaks connection. And maybe you're one of the 80% and you're thinking, man, I know I need to serve. I just don't know where. I feel convicted to serve, but I don't know what to do. I'm not, I'm not, I've not been in church long. I've not been a believer long. Or maybe it's just that you're passive and you said, you know what? They're doing a good job of it. We'll just let them do it. Here's the deal, guys. 
we need people to hold up our arms. You may be weak, you may be strong, you may be outgoing, you may be shy, you may know the Bible inside and out, or you may not even be a believer in here, a baby believer. We need each other so badly. We cannot do this. Listen, we are not one another's enemies. Satan is our enemy. The lady that you work with, it's hard to deal with, she's not your enemy. Your mother-in-law is not your enemy. That person at school, not your enemy. Satan's the enemy. People are to be loved. People need to see a picture of love. They see that hopefully best in the church. But guys, inside the church where people aren't always looking because they're out there, we need to love one another. God uses people. But guys, God will use a united people to take walls that are falling down and rebuild them faster and with better quality than maybe they were in the first place. I need you. We need each other. I'll tell you all this. I do want to share this one with you. Would you go to the slide, Steve, that says when things are going well? This is evident. Becca, Becca Fenton, where are you at? You can, you can say amen to this, but you're not the only one. I bet everybody could say amen to this. When things are going well, get ready for trouble, right? Why? Because the enemy doesn't want to see the work of the Lord make progress. As long as the people in Jerusalem were content with their sad and ruined city, as long as they were okay with, oh man, we're reaching the same people we always did, as long as they were okay with, hey, we're still paying the bills, as long as they were okay with, it's nice in here, as long as they were okay, the enemy left them alone. But when the Jews and us began to serve the Lord and bring glory to God's name, the enemy became active, and it is so with us today. Now here's the beautiful part of that. The enemy is a defeated foe. Satan is a beaten opponent of the Lord Jesus who stands in victory. And so we remember this as we think, man, I want to do something for God. I want to work on the city walls, but I know Satan's just going to beat me up if I do it. He's beating me up. He's beating you up. He's beating us all up. Man, I'm tired of getting beat up. I really am. Satan has kicked me in the teeth dozens of times, not just in the past five months, but over the years. There are so many Mondays when I've thought about quitting the ministry. That's being real. But then I think, Satan's not going to win. My life, not that I'm something special, my life, the people that I shepherd, the gospel that I share, the hope that I give, the encouragement that I'm hopefully breathing out to someone, the prayers that I pray, God continues to instill confidence and strength. And he does that in you as well. So don't be afraid to step up and step out just because it's going to get harder. That's how we grow. And as it gets tougher, God's grace gets bigger and stronger for us to keep us moving forward. The temptation to quit, the temptation to give up, the temptation to leave, those are all real for us. But you're where you're supposed to be by God's will, I believe, for a very real reason. This opposition is not only an evidence that God is blessing us, it was so for the people of God, but opposition is an opportunity for us to grow. It brings out the best in us. It shows us what Jesus went through. If Jesus had had this cushy, easy little life that said, you know what, I'm going to do all these things, get all these people to like me, perform these miracles, make food out of nothing, heal people, bring people back from the dead— I mean, he could have gotten everyone to like him. Jesus could have had a mega church like nobody had ever seen in the world that day. 
But instead he spoke truth too, and it offended people, even to the point that they wanted to kill him. Guys, we have to preach and teach love and grace in the same breath. We need that amongst each other. We're going to have revival. It's Bible conference, but it's also revival starting tonight. Revival is a name for a group of meetings. Revival does not happen unless it happens in your heart. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now. We'll be dismissed in just one second, but please bow your heads and pray. Consider this. Um, Are your hands clean? Do you have a little bit of grit and dirt under your fingernails? Have you been sweating? Your back sore? Your feet hurt? What spiritual work are you doing? How are you loving somebody? Who are you reaching? Whose life are you touching? Have you made any disciples? Where are you at in your walk with Jesus? Man, it's a beautiful thing to look back and see how far we've come. It's also a daunting task sometimes to think how far we've got left to go. One step. One step of faith. One step forward. Maybe there's somebody beside you. Maybe they're in this church today that's fallen down. And maybe your step towards them or the step across the room to lift them up and to pick them up, to grab their hand and to help walk them one more step. Maybe you don't know where the finish line is and maybe it's a long, long way off, but one step, one step of faith. God rebuilds with people. We're the people. Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. He didn't say send Brian. He didn't say send Chad. He didn't say send Diane or Monica or Steve or anybody else. He said, send me. And guys, I pray that your step of faith this morning is in the direction of saying, God, I'm scared maybe of what Satan will do to me. I'm scared of the opposition that I'll face. I don't want to be so tired. But God, in spite of it all, I trust you bigger than all of that. God, use me. God, encourage me. God, I know I haven't been doing what I'm supposed to do, but God, I want to do the right thing. God, give me grace. God, forgive me. What do you need to say to God today? God, help me. God, love me. God, send me. Friends, we're God's people. Much more so, we're God's children. And a good parent might discipline us for a season so that we could be restored and do greater things. And if you feel the Lord's chastisement, even today, know this, that grace comes in the morning. We may walk out with tears in our eyes, but we come back bearing sheaves from the harvest. God, in your name today, we pray for your people, Lord that where we're broken, where we're falling down, that you would repair us and restore us. Lord, that you would use the concrete and mortar to seal us together, that we don't have to stand by ourselves. That the foundation of Jesus is strong and that this church would grow and move forward. Lord, that we would love people, that we would start by loving ourselves and loving each other here. Where we're wrong, that we'd get right with you. Where we're broken, Lord God, that you'd restore. Oh, Father, we pray, 
for this evening, for this week, knowing full well, God, that we may have just a few folks even show up. But Lord God, the ones that are here, the ones that wish to be here and can't, the ones that will come, Lord God, use each one of us to make a difference. God, bless us, encourage us, convict us, cut out what's wrong in our lives, Lord, but heal us and make us better than we've ever been. God, you are mighty and powerful. You sent your one and only son, Jesus, to be the price and payment of our sin so that today we can stand before you and fall before you, Lord, in humility and say, God, I'm a sinner and I've messed up. I know that there is no way to salvation. I know I can't even be your child without Jesus. And it's in him that I believe. Forgive me of my sin. Restore me. Fill me with your spirit. Use me. Oh God, we pray that there's every beating heart in this place that's listening, that's in present. Lord God, that we belong to you. And if not, we would give our lives to you. And that you would use us to form a team that's never been seen. The gates of hell will not prevail against us because of your glory. Empower us today, Lord God. If there's someone needing to make a decision, Father, Father, please. Whether they make it a public decision or it's a private decision, Lord, don't let them hold back. We love you and we throw ourselves at your mercy. We're encouraged because you're with us. We're encouraged that we can't out your grace. We're encouraged that though we may be complacent at times, that you will put us back in the fight and use us again. May your name be forever glorified in our lives. May praise echo from our lips. May you be the focus of our eyes. May we shout Jesus to everyone we meet. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name.